Welcome back to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg and I field listeners' questions about branched-chain amino acids, mini-cuts, potential differences between males and females, tips for your first powerlifting meet, and more. To finish off the episode, Greg and I discuss our favorite quad exercises for building up big legs in a big squat. Remember, we have a new process for submitting questions. If you want your questions answered on a future episode, submit them by visiting tiny.cc sbsqa or click on the link in the episode description. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today, I am joined by a temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles. And since it is a Q&A episode, we are going to get right down to business. So the first question is for Greg. It is from John Haynes. The question is, how does chronological age affect potential training status? Yeah, so uh, first off, thank you for the question, John. Uh, So John also asked another question or or submitted something else via our Q&A form to ask and verify that I am actually originally from Moxville, North Carolina. He is one of maybe 2,000 other Moxvilleites out in the world. And so, yes, John, I am originally from Moxville. Uh, Small world. So anyway, um, so John's question was, was how how does age affect potential training status? And the examples he gave were, uh, for example, if Arnold Schwarzenegger had started training in his 30s or 40s, would he still have been able to achieve almost as impressive of a physique as he did when he was, you know, competing in bodybuilding in his 20s and maybe early 30s? Um, Then with further context of when you look at uh, sarcopenia and just rates of natural muscle loss over time, doesn't paint a pretty picture. So, you know, I'm going to answer this question with the assumption being the question is, if you compare two people, they're exactly the same, maybe they're identical twins, and one of them started training early in life, and say one of them started training in their 30s or 40s, by the time they're 50, how different will their results be in terms of strength and physique? That That's going to be kind of my assumption when answering the question. And The answer is, we don't know for sure, but I think we can make some educated guesses. So to start with, um, there is bountiful evidence that older people can still respond positively to resistance training. So there's a bunch of studies with people in their 40s, 50s, even into their 60s, where they do a resistance training program and they get robust increases in muscle size and also strength um, and disproportionate increases in strength even relative to to what you'd see like in the the strength versus muscle mass increases in in younger adults um, because with sarcopenia you also get myopenia so not just a decrease in muscle mass but also uh, a further decrease in strength disproportionate to the decrease in muscle mass and it seems like a lot of that disproportionate decrease in strength that comes with age comes roaring back when you expose people to resistance training and their like muscle mass to strength ratio becomes more normalized and and more similar to what it would be for a younger adult. So um, yeah, we see that older adults can respond 
not just older, but middle-aged adults as well, still respond very robustly to resistance training. Um, probably not quite as much as, you know, teenagers or people in their 20s do, but still pretty large response. Um, there, there have been a couple recent papers looking at resistance training in very old adults. So I believe the, the paper I saw recently, the age range was like 84 to 95. And um, th- there have been a few other studies with people in their 80s into their 90s where it seems like by the time you're that age, you you may <laughs> you may realistically not get that much out of resistance training. Um, you're, the, the processes of senescence have you know taken their toll to such a degree that you just probably don't respond super well to really probably any exercise stimulus at that point. But that's, you know, there we're talking like, very much end of life for pretty much everyone except like super centenarians. But for the vast, vast majority of life, you train, good things happen. And so then the question is, you know, how's that going to differ if you pick up training in your 40s versus if you started when you were younger? And as I said, we don't have direct evidence for that, but I I think it would probably be pretty similar actually to aerobic training. Um, And we discussed a study previously on the Stronger by Science podcast that looked at that. Um, And basically, so that study was comparing groups of individuals who had been engaged in endurance training their entire lives versus groups of people who picked up endurance training, I believe, in their 40s. And these folks in, in the study were now in their 50s and 60s. And what they saw is that the folks who picked up endurance training in their 40s were just as good of endurance athletes as the people who had been doing recreational endurance training their entire lives. Uh, I kind of assume the same thing would be true for strength. So essentially, if you, you know, if you start doing resistance training, both muscle mass and strength go way above what their baseline would have been if you didn't train. Um, But then eventually age catches up to everyone, except maybe Dave Ricks, you know, time will tell if he's squatting 800 on his 80th birthday, maybe he's the one exception. But for the most part, time catches up with everyone. And even if you keep training, you're going to get progressively weaker over time. And it's kind of a a parabolic-ish shape, but not exactly. But it goes up and starts trending down over time. Then if you didn't resistance train when you were young and started when you were in your 30s or 40s, you're also going to get a big spike up over baseline in terms of both both muscle mass and strength when you start training. And at some point, that, that progression of strength and muscle is probably going to more or less catch up with where it would have been if you'd been training the whole time. So, you know, and, and that may be like a 10-year process. So if you would have started training in your 20s uh, and, and training the whole time and instead you pick up training at 35, then maybe, you know, you at 40 compared to the theoretical you that would have started training 15 years ago, maybe at 40 you're still not where you would have otherwise been at 40, but by the time you're 45 or 50, you're to basically the same place you would have been had you been training the whole time. I think that that's probably what would happen for the majority of people. However, I do think that I do think that there's probably something to physical exercise 
and, and specifically things that challenge the muscles during childhood and adolescence that probably make a, a pretty significant difference in terms of long-term capability. So, uh, and, and again, th- this this is kind of my opinion. I don't know of direct research on this, but just based on what I've seen, like I, and, and this could just be like selection bias that the people who are naturally gifted for lifting are also the people who are naturally gifted enough for other sports that they gravitate to them when they're young. But But I do kind of think that like, you know, maybe you starting training at 35 and you starting training at 20. By the time you're 45, maybe you wind up in basically the same spot. But I do think that, you know, you starting training at 35 after a fairly sedentary childhood versus you with a active childhood playing sports growing up and then picking up resistance training in your 20s. I think that that's probably that that very well may give you a lifelong benefit above what you would have gotten if you had a sedentary childhood. I, I again, I, I can't cite research to back that up, but that's that's very much what it looks like to me when I just compare people who did have active childhoods and maybe did some manual labor, uh, like working on farms or played a lot of sports growing up. Like it, it really does seem that they respond a lot better to resistance training, which again could just be bias of played sports because they would have been naturally gifted for strength in the first place. But I, I do suspect that that may be an actual effect. Um, but yeah, for the most part, you're probably missing out on maybe a little something during the first five years that you're training. But by the time you've put 10 years in under the bar, where you are at that point is probably where it would have been at the same chronological age if you had 30 years under the bar leading up to that point. I agree. And this is, this seems to be a really common concern. I, I feel like we, we tend to get a lot of questions of people that are in one of two positions. Either they've been training for a while, but they're approaching, you know, insert your age here. And they're concerned that things are going to start dropping off or they're new to the game and they're, you know, whatever age to them is, is potentially problematic. And they're like, should I even bother getting into this thing at this point? Have I missed too much? Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, while I understand those concerns for sure, um, I I do think a lot of people maybe overestimate exactly how how horrifically things drop off in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know, you still see people in the 50s, in their 50s, and and sometimes even in the 60s that are doing some, some pretty wild stuff athletically. And then when you look at people in their 70s and 80s who have continued their activity level compared to their peers... It's just dramatically night and day. So, so I, I always um, try to make a point to encourage people like, let, let's not worry about like whether or not just everything's going to completely go downhill when you turn 40, you mm-hmm. know, because realistically, there's still plenty of gas left in that tank. And even if you're not going to hit your, you know, all time peak physique at the age of 63, when you look around at your 63 year old peers, you're going to be a heck of a lot. You're going to be in much better shape and very happy that you still decided to pursue this stuff. Yeah, for sure. There are two different considerations here. So like, you know, one, maybe are you losing something over what would have been theoretically optimal if you started training 20 years ago? I mean, maybe we don't know that for sure, but you know, that's a possibility. But then kind of in terms of opportunity cost moving forward, 
would you be missing something 10 years from now if you didn't start training today? Yes, for sure. Right. And so you you are absolutely still going to get something out of it. Maybe you're not going to to reach the heights that you would have otherwise, but you're still going to be way, way better off for, for picking it up in the first place. Definitely. All right. Question for Eric from Hayato Nishiyama. Uh, I hear people talk about BCAAs all the time, um, but I really don't hear people talk about EAAs or essential amino acids. Essential amino acids are more expensive than BCAAs, but are they actually better? Uh, or is it a waste of money like BCAAs are? So this is a good question. Um, definitely BCAAs have had their place uh, kind of up in the royal family of supplements in the bodybuilding world. Um, or at least they had. I feel like they're, they've kind of lost that foothold. But um, I don't know why. I'm not certain why the branch chain amino acids rose to prominence and the essential amino acids didn't. I think for a while there, um, Greg, am I crazy for thinking that for a while there, there just weren't any decent tasting EAA formulas out there? I feel like there were potentially flavoring issues that led people to go down the, the BCAA route. I mean, possibly, uh, I think a lot of that would probably depend on leucine dosing because leucine tastes terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know why the companies decided, Hey, let's go all in on, on branch chains. But definitely if you looked at the market, just based on the products that were available, there was a lot more emphasis on branch chains than, than essential amino acids. And just to kind of set the framework here. So the branch chain amino acids are three amino acids that do happen to be essential amino acids. Uh, but an essential amino acid product just has the other essential amino acids as well. So the branch chains are branch chains are basically a subcategory of the essential amino acids, and then there are also non-essential amino acids in the diet. Now, the reason the essential amino acids are important is because if you intend to do something crazy like build some muscle proteins, then you're going to need all the essential amino acids present in sufficient quantities. Um, now as the asker of the question alluded to the, 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 the more popular opinion these days is that branch chain amino acid products probably have a lot more limited utility than we used to think, or, or than we, than used to be kind of commonly thought. So back in the day, I mean, you were not going to find a bodybuilder that wasn't carrying around a gallon jug full of unusually purple water. And without question, the reason it was purple was because there were branch chain amino acids in it. And they would basically just sip on it all day like a leucine drip. Um, and I think a lot of people were really into this idea. And by the way, leucine is one of the branch chain amino acids. But I think a lot of people were really into this idea that if you just kind of consistently sipped on branch chains, it's like, okay, we're going to stay slightly anabolic, like pretty much around the clock. And with what we've learned about the temporal aspects of muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown, that doesn't seem to be a good strategy. So the, the people that were putting a lot of eggs in that basket, I mean, their water tasted better than it otherwise would have in most cases. But aside from that, it probably wasn't doing a ton for them. And to be honest, I just can't think of a super great use for branch chain amino acids. Um, 
I, I can think of maybe some uses for essential amino acids, but really what we're getting at here with using an essential amino acid supplement, maybe you could argue that if someone was on a, let, let's say like a vegan diet on fairly limited calories, so they couldn't, uh, one, one of the tricky things about vegan diets is you have to make sure that you're getting uh, enough protein intake that, you know, by putting all these different protein sources together, you're getting the essential amino acids you need throughout the day. And one of the challenges with that is finding vegan proteins that have diverse amino acid profiles that don't also have a decent amount of fat or carbohydrate in them. And so it can get pretty tough without supplementation to put together a low-calorie, high-protein vegan diet. It can get really challenging without question. Um, now, if you choose to consume a vegan diet, I got zero problems with that. Totally fine with that. Um, but there are some challenges there when it comes to meeting those, those needs for amino acid intakes. So I could maybe see the utility of an essential amino acid product in that context. Um, maybe like I know one way that people like to use this is for an intra workout kind of deal where they're like, Oh, I want to have intra workout protein, but in order to make digestion a little easier, um, maybe, and, and maybe, you know, uptake quicker absorption, maybe I'll go with essential amino acids. I guess if you're comparing it kind of apples to apples there, um, the essential amino acids probably would make more sense, but I think there's a very limited number of people who really need to be having intra-workout protein supplementation. So even with that uh, justification, I don't think it's a particularly, I don't think you're likely to see a very big benefit from that personally. Um, maybe if you are about to do a pretty intense workout and you're like, you know what, I, I don't want to go in there completely fasted. I'd like to have some amino acids, some kind of... Uh, some kind of amino acids in the bloodstream uh, during and then immediately after the workout. Um, if maybe if you wanted to do that, but you couldn't eat a full protein, a full in intact food-based protein because it just your stomach cannot handle digesting those proteins during the workout. Maybe there might be an application there. But the one thing I want to highlight is, as you can imagine, these. Uh, scenarios that I'm constructing for trying to find a really good val really good uh, justified use for them, you have to start putting kind of like a few circumstantial factors together to make these scenarios. I, I personally think that the the supplementation uh, I, I think the promise of branch chain and essential amino acid supplementation is very limited to very specific specific circumstances at best. I, I can I can throw one out there that um, I do think applies to probably a non-negligible amount of people. Sure. What do you got? So I think that um, I think that there's been a lot of backlash against BCAAs, probably to a degree that's not completely warranted. Uh, because the thing is, I, I think a lot of the backlash is they were so hyped a few years ago, and now there more and more research is coming in, and we realize like. The, the level of hype we saw probably wasn't justified. But the thing is, there is a lot of research on branch chains and, and to a lesser degree, essential amino acids, which probably are just as good as branch chains, if not slightly better, 
Uh, but yeah, there there is a fair amount of work on branch chain amino acids looking at recovery from resistance training to the point that there's a few meta-analyses at this point. And those metas do find that compared to a placebo, which is almost always maltodextrin, um, branch chain amino acids do improve recovery from, from exercise training. And so the problem is that even though there's, I don't know, probably 15 or 20 studies at this point comparing branch chains to a placebo, they've never been com- compared to just like straight up whey protein to see the effects on recovery from resistance exercise. And in all likelihood, like I mean, we know protein does the same stuff. You give people protein versus a placebo, protein also improves recovery from resistance exercise. And so in all likelihood, branch chain amino acids don't do any better than protein and, and very well could be worse than protein for recovery from resistance exercise. So that's like a glaring hole in the literature. But one thing to note just from a practical perspective is that a lot of people, um, and, and myself included here, so I don't use branch chain amino acids, but I kind of think I probably should because I don't want to eat directly after a workout. Uh, I kind of get around that because I'm one of the weird people who can eat a lot right before a workout and I'm totally fine. Um, but especially with using protein supplements, if I use particularly whey protein within an hour of finishing a training session, it always makes me feel nauseated. And, you know, if I'm hot and like a little overheated from a training session, I don't want to immediately go home and eat a huge meal. Like I, I probably don't really want to eat again until maybe two, two-ish hours after a training session. And so in my case, if I would be comparing... <laughs> branch chain amino acids against nothing, branch chain amino acids very well might help me. I don't use them because I'm cheap as fuck, but <laughs> but I, I do know, and this is feedback I've heard from a lot of people when I have shit on branch chain amino acids in the past, um, where they're like, I just can't consume protein around workouts. Like it always makes me feel really nauseated. I don't have much of an appetite but I can sip on branch chain amino acids and that's totally fine. And so like, I don't think that that applies to a large majority of people, but if you do compare branch chains against nothing, it is, it is better than nothing. Like that is something you can confidently say about it. So if you're someone who just, just doesn't want to consume protein around a training session, cause it like upsets your stomach, makes you feel nauseated, you probably will get some utility from branch chain amino acid supplementation. Yeah, so I did mention that scenario in the pre-exercise um, context, but I, I didn't think about the post because that's never been a problem for me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm the opposite. It, it, I struggle to train on a full stomach, but right after I can eat usually. Yeah. But um, th- that would make sense. Um, in that scenario, I would speculate that an essential amino acid product, if I'm, I would speculate, would probably be even a better option. No, I, I agree. Than, than branch chain amino acids. Um, so so to answer the question, um, I, I would say it, it, most of the places where you can really justify using either branch chains or essential amino acids, I do think that you would at least be inclined to um, slightly f- have a more favorable view of the essential amino acids because uh, I, I just think there there is inherent benefit to having a more complete amino acid profile than just the branch chains in that supplement. Um, 
so you know the 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 two most likely scenarios playing the numbers as we mentioned you don't have the stomach for having whole intact proteins that require greater digestion um you know before after a workout or you uh are consuming a diet that is most mostly plentiful in lower quality proteins so i'm thinking usually a vegan diet and you are simply using it to supplement the amino acid profile of some of those lower quality proteins I do want to bring, I want to like limp into the this, the discussion here with a couple like takes that I'm not fully committed to. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a, a couple recent things that are just, my bias, generally speaking, is to lean toward food when food can work. And then when it can't work, then embrace supplementation. So I'm not anti-supplement by any means, but... You know, for, for me, I'm, I'm always thinking, what is it going to take to shift me away from a food and toward a supplement? Or if a supplement just cannot be obtained from food, then that decision is easy. But with amino acids, I'm always thinking, why am I not going to have a delicious hamburger? And instead, I'm going to have some kind of weird amino acid mixture replacing food. And so, it, or, the, or a weird and sad simulacrum of lasagna, potentially. That's we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, so there was a, a review paper by by a few authors that I would just mispronounce all of their names: uh, Yong Qing Ho, Yu Long Yin, and Wu. <laughs> but this paper came out in 2015. If you want to search it, <laughs> maybe we'll go with the title, not the author names. That I just there's no way you could possibly figure out how to spell those. Um, dietary essentiality of nutritionally non-essential amino acids for animals and humans. And basically what they were highlighting in the paper is that non-essential amino acids do play important roles in things like gene expression, cell signaling, digestion, absorption, uh, DNA and protein synthesis, proteolysis, uh, metabolism, endocrine status, a whole bunch of things uh, that that several non-essential amino acids play very critical roles in, and what what the general argument they were making is, is that the extreme focus and emphasis on essential amino acids in the diet has maybe undersold the role that dietary non-essential amino acids play. Uh, so so they they were basically saying, hey, by calling them non-essential, we've really um, We've really downplayed exactly exactly how important it is to get some of these amino acids from the diet. There was also a very interesting paper in 2019. Uh, this one was called "Branch Chain Amino Acids Impact Health and Lifespan Indirectly Via Amino Acid Imbalance," uh, or I guess it's amino acid balance and appetite control. But when you read the paper, they're really focused on imbalance. Um, but what they were doing, it was a, a rodent study, and, and they basically looked at these uh, rats or mice, and they tweaked the, the branched-chain amino acid content of their diets. And Because there's long been this kind of weird observation that uh, high branched-chain amino acid intake seems to be associated with like diabetes and, and uh, insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, what's, what exactly is going on there? Because it's just an association, not necessarily a, a causal relationship. Um, so a lot of times people see those associations and they say like, oh, branch chains are going to give me diabetes. Um, but what what they found with their study, again, it's one study, it's a rodent model. We don't know exactly how well it's going to translate over to humans. I'm by no means an amino acid metabolism expert. 
Um, but what they found was that when they really ramped up the branched chain amino acid content of the diets, um, what they found was they basically in, induced an imbalance between the branched chain amino acids and essentially all the other dietary amino acids that would be taken in. Um, and the ones that they really focused in on were tryptophan and threonine. Uh, and what they found was that this was associated with hyperphagia, which is an increased appetite, and central serotonin depletion. What they were getting at is that by drastically increasing the branched chain amino acid content of the diet, maybe by inducing this imbalance that would not typically be found in the normal protein sources of the diet uh, for these animals, maybe that imbalance was tr triggering hyperphagia and some other unwanted uh, uh, kind of unintended consequences of altering that balance that caused them to essentially overeat. I don't, again, I'm completely limping in with very not strong takes on this, but there are at least some kind of rumblings in the literature that would make you think kind of, they, they basically support my bias that I came to the conversation with, with which is <laughs> basically you have to convince me to move away from food toward amino acid supplementation, or at least give me good reason to believe that these are truly equivalent things that are worth swapping. So aside from the very special, because the reason I bring this up is everyone's always like, yeah, but what if I had this awesome, extremely supercharged diet that has like all these very complex, like I'm supplementing, you know, all these different amino acids at all these different times because this is better than just a standard diet with plenty of protein in it. Um, I have some reservations about getting super complicated about all these different dosing protocols for different amino acid mixtures. I think for me right now, unless you're in some of those really uh, specialized scenarios that we talked about where we're like, okay, it makes a lot of sense to put in like branch chains or essential amino acids, barring those circumstances we already kind of put forward. I think generally speaking, if you're having... Uh, a, a diet with sufficient protein that's got plenty of high quality protein sources in it, most of your amino acid needs are going to be met uh, and really not worth getting too concerned about. Uh, one, one thing I would add about the, the rodent study is um, I don't know if the finding of BCA induced hyperphagia has been replicated in humans, but the... Um, uh, depletion of tryptophan in the CNS and the, the decrease in serotonin production. I'm quite confident that there is evidence for that in humans as well. Um, th that's, th that's one of the things I came across when I used to have much worse sleep issues than I did. And, uh, I, I was looking into like, oh, what are some of the things nutritionally I could do to, to maybe sleep a little bit better. And, um, one of the things that, a lot of people were recommending is maybe don't eat protein right before bed if you're having sleep issues. So like for the vast majority of people, it's, um, it's, it's probably not going to affect you, but maybe if you are having sleep issues, like eating like high leucine protein sources, um, can, uh, deplete tryptophan in the brain to some degree, because if memory serves, leucine and tryptophan have the same transporter. And so it's like a competitive inhibition thing. Um, and tryptophan helps with relaxation and getting to bed. So I, I don't know if, if the hyperphagia bit has been replicated in humans. Um, but I think the general physiology, uh, 
has been has been shown to apply to humans as well. So it 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 may be applicable. Yeah, I believe there are some papers looking at because of the kind of central neurotransmitter effects that we see with like high branch chain amino acid intakes. I believe uh, that there are some studies looking at it as a, a means of reducing central fatigue during like low intensity exercise. Have you ever seen those papers? No, I think they're out there. Um, but but I remember it was looking at like pretty low intensity, long duration stuff, if, if memory serves. So I didn't I didn't get super into the literature, but I, I do believe it's out there. Okay, next question is for Greg from Monis. Uh, the question is, most research uses men as a sample population. Do you think that the findings apply to women in equal measure? So generally, yes. Um, and, and at the very least, I think that I think that if if something has been found to be true in men, it's a useful null to assume that it would apply in women as well. So for the most part, um, the the differences we see, at least in and here I'm talking like exercise literature. So for example, um, I know that it's been an issue in the medical research in recent years that like, oh, sometimes like certain diseases or conditions don't manifest the same way in men and women. And maybe we've been under diagnosing women for a lot of years because we were looking for signs that we had only like verified in male research. And I know that like heart attacks are, are a big one there that like sometimes uh, the, the signs of heart attacks in men and women are, are a bit different. Um, and maybe like some drugs have different effects on men and women or like different interactions. So anyway, I'm, I'm not trying to claim that this is like a generalizable thing for all areas of scientific research. But at least for exercise and nutrition research, it seems like most of the stuff that applies in men probably applies to women as well, maybe with some slight differences, but not tremendous differences. So for example, um, some of the differences that we have seen, um, and, and some of which we've talked about on the podcast before, is that um, men and women may handle alcohol a little bit differently such that at a given uh, dose of alcohol relative to body mass or lean mass, there may be an initial larger spike in BAC in females, um, but then they metabolize it quicker and get it out of their system a little bit quicker than males do. Um, Eric reviewed a paper for the, the upcoming issue of mass this month, um, talking about maybe some differences in nitrate metabolism and perhaps the efficacy of like beetroot supplementation in males and females. Um, the idea being that that maybe nitrate supplementation wouldn't help females quite as much due, due to various reasons, but one of which is just higher levels of nitrite in the blood naturally. And so like maybe adding a little bit extra to the mix doesn't really help all that much. Um and there, there are obviously sex differences in general as well. So we know that there's metabolic differences in submaximal exercise. So like uh, females rely a little bit more on oxidative metabolism and males a little bit more on anaerobic metabolism. Um, so like I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to say that there are no differences whatsoever, but in terms of research looking at application of, say, different nutritional interventions or different training protocols, things seem to be pretty similar. And even when they differ, they don't differ hugely. So for example, 
one way that uh, or, or like one area where some of the research findings differ between research on males and females is in middle-aged populations does resistance training and plyometric training increase bone mineral density um, until recently it was thought that in postmenopausal women you couldn't increase bone mineral density now now there have been a few studies showing small increases but still not huge increases whereas for male populations of the same age you do often see increases in bone mineral density with resistance or plyometric training um so there that's a difference but it's also it's a difference in degree and not in kind because for example for males of that age maybe you're going to see a maintenance of bone mineral density or a slight decrease without training and now you're seeing increases with training for women, maybe you're seeing decreases and, and maybe even larger decreases without training. And with training, you're seeing maintenance. So it's still like better than the alternative. Like the, the actual outcome, like whether it increases or just holds its ground may differ. But in terms of is it better than not doing this training, it's still the same. So like you'll sometimes see differences like that, where, which maybe exist but aren't functionally all that important for like what you would actually recommend to people um and then just in terms of like pure training research the stuff we've seen work for for men works for women as well um and the, like so there's in general in the resistance training research more research in in males and females but in the handful of studies that do use female subjects we tend to see similar similarities or differences with various protocols in males and females so for example uh the periodization research way way more research on males than females but the handful of studies in females also tend to find periodized resistance training is, produces larger strength gains than non-periodized not a huge body of research but what we have looks similar to what we've seen in males um the the one area where it kind of looked like it might be different is in comparing high load and low load training at one point there were like 13 studies in males and one in females uh and the studies in males were looking like oh probably pretty similar hypertrophy between high load and low load training the one study in females showed way more hypertrophy with with heavier training um but since then, like three or four more papers have been published in females looking at that question, and they all found pretty similar hypertrophy with high and low load training. So kind of looked like that one study may have been a bit of an outlier. But but yeah, so I, I certainly don't want to say that there are no differences, but the, the differences that do exist tend to not be tend to not be like night and day differences. And I think that based on the research we have so far, it's generally not a bad null hypothesis that if we see something working in males, it's probably going to work in females as well. That's not always the case all the time, but when there are differences, they tend to be, you know, stuff like increases versus maintenance and bone mass that are still better than the alternative um, and, and oftentimes aren't big enough to really write home about. Yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting though to see in some cases how big the discrepancy can be like you mentioned in the article i'm working on for mass like they found like a hundred relevant studies over a hundred in males only and then seven 
in females. Like right, yeah. sometimes it can be such a huge discrepancy. And it, it, it's very interesting to see how the magnitude of some of these effects can change. And then taking it a step further, how it can even vary throughout the menstrual cycle mm-hmm. um, in eumenorrheic women. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's really nice that that body of literature seems to be growing very aggressively mm-hmm. over the last five or 10 years where like we finally were just like, Hey, we also need to study women too. And, uh, yeah, it, it's been, te- I mean, yeah, I, f- I feel like every month when, when we look at the new, uh, the new batch of studies that came out, there's several studies looking at sex differences, which is, which is awesome. Yeah. And, and one just general thing I would add is kind of painting in broad strokes here is that, a lot of the differences that exist and are noteworthy for exercise um, tend to be metabolic differences. And so, it, but stuff like, you know, just straight up muscle function and muscle metabolism and like neural stuff tends to be pretty similar or like quite, quite similar between males and females. So in general, if there's say nutrition research or supplement research that's only been conducted in males and hasn't been conducted in females due to those metabolic differences and like differences in how males and females process certain nutrients and metabolize certain things. I would, I would maybe be a little bit more cautious and skeptical of sports nutrition and sports supplementation research. If you, if you're only seeing findings in male subjects, Whereas just straight up like sports science exercise research, I think that that's going to be quite, quite similar between males and females. I think in in both cases, the similarities are going to be larger than the differences, but the differences tend to show up and maybe be more notable in magnitude for nutrition and supplementation stuff than just straight up exercise research and especially like strength and hypertrophy stuff. That makes sense. All right. Next question is from Baruch. Um, Addressing this to Dr. Trexler, he notes that Greg can chime in as well, but looking at the topic of the question, I am not going to chime in as well. (laughs) So uh, the question is, what is your opinion on mini cuts during an extended gaining phase? How long should a mini cut be? How aggressive should they be? And what should training be like in a mini cut? Yeah, it's a good question. Now, I've never been particularly fond of mini cuts, but that doesn't mean that I don't think they're okay. So what I mean by that is there are some reasons to do mini cuts, but I've never been of the opinion that you should like plan out a weight gaining phase and be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, bulk for 12 weeks and then have a planned mini cut for four. Cause I'd say, well, why don't why don't you just take a lower, like a slower rate of weight gain for those 16 weeks instead of, you know, taking some very ambitious steps forward and then taking time to take steps backward. If the goal here is to put on some lean tissue, I think we should spend that time in a surplus. So, uh, there, there are reasons though, why during a weight gaining phase, you might take, you know, take a, a minute to reassess and say, Hey, it's time for a mini cut. So, you know, if you get to a point when, when you're gaining weight and you become unhappy with how you look and you're like, you know what, I'd, I'd feel a lot better if I continued this weight gain phase, but from a leaner spot, uh, which is a, a totally uh, justifiable uh, perspective to have. Uh, or you could be unhappy with how you feel. You know, you might, you might like have one of those days where you like walk up a staircase and you're like, um, you know, that 
that that was too hard. <laughs> it shouldn't be that hard. And, and then you might say, yeah, I kind of want to trim up a little bit and, th- and then reassess the uh, uh, or, or kind of reinitiate the muscle gain phase. Um, you know, you might be unhappy with some health markers. You might go to the doctor and be like, ooh, those numbers aren't great. Or you might find that, you know, based on the type of performance you value, that your weight gain has maybe had an unfavorable effect on your performance and you, you want to alleviate that. So there are reasons to do it, but but I, I also, I'm not a huge fan of the idea that it should be a, a pre-planned, scheduled in part of the weight gain process. I, I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, now, let's say you get to that point and you say, for, for one of those reasons or for some reason I didn't think of, it's time for a mini cut. Honestly, I, I would treat it uh, basically exactly like a regular normal cut. So I would uh, focus in on a, what I would deem to be an appropriate rate of, uh, of weight loss. Generally speaking, that's going to be somewhere between 0.5 to 1% of body weight per week. And part of the question was, you know, how long should the mini cut be? I'd say work backwards. Start with what's my intended rate of weight loss get on that rate of weight loss and then however many weeks it takes that's how many weeks you do you know you you focus on maintaining the rate of weight loss that seems appropriate and when you're there when you're at the finish line you'll know it and that's how long it should take um now when you're on a mini cut i really don't think that you should have to adapt your training too much um you you might have a natural uh urge to kind of dive in and kind of overdo it with cardio, I think that would be inadvisable. Uh, the, the whole premise of a mini cut would suggest this really doesn't have to be an extreme measure. You should be at a place where you have plenty of fat to lose, which is why we're doing the mini cut in the first place. Um, I mean, you know, plenty of fat to lose is a very uh, subjective term, but you're not like at the end of a very long weight loss diet. I mean, this should not be a particularly arduous task to do a mini cut uh, at the stage in which you're initiating the cut. So you shouldn't have to make any really drastic changes. You shouldn't have to overdo it with the cardio. Um, you really won't have to worry. You, you really shouldn't have to worry about metabolic metabolic adaptation much at all. Um, the nature of a mini cut would suggest that you have some weight to lose. Um, you're not in a rush to do it, so you should be able to take uh, an appropriate rate of weight loss and an appropriate timeline. And uh, so you shouldn't you shouldn't be pushing into like super low body fat levels or losing enormous amounts of weight. So metabolic adaptation really shouldn't be a critical uh, factor here, aside from just some people need to drop their initial calories just a little lower than others. Um, if you are going to adapt something in your training, um, we had a really nice talk with uh, the other Eric, Eric Helms, about this on the podcast. Generally speaking, when you're cutting and you need to adapt your training, um, the easiest things to cut, the most advisable things to cut would be some of that just annoying accessory volume that deep down in your heart, you know it's not, it's not really bringing that much to the table. It's just uh, giving you more to recover from and kind of stealing more minutes of your time at the gym. So dropping uh, some annoying accessory volume, and I would say to take that a step further, um, just dropping extraneous sets from that volume. So if the option is to trim down the number of sets on two exercises, 
or to drop one entirely and leave the sets alone on the other. I would argue there might be a slight advantage to just trimming the sets for each um, because I, I think what you see, and Greg, you know a lot more about this than I do um, just based on your, your research interests, but you know, going from one sets to three sets tends to be a positive thing, but eventually there's diminishing returns where it's like, you could probably trim back on sets a little bit and still have a really nice workout keeping your, your total number of exercises in there. Um, but I mean, really, there shouldn't be any huge dramatic changes because the nature of mini cuts are, is such that this is not a huge dramatic thing. You basically, you've got to a, you've gotten to a point, you've arrived at a point in your weight gain phase where you say, ah, we've kind of gone a little overboard. And, you know, basically you, you find yourself in a spot where you do wish to continue uh, gaining lean mass. But, you know, in, in some cases we expect that there's going to be some residual fat gain along with our gain of lean mass whenever we do a weight gain phase. And if you get to a point where you're like, okay, this is definitely as, as fat as I would like to become at any point, but I still have lean mass to gain, that's kind of a, a final reason where it would make sense. To, to do a mini cut and say, I know that during the rest of this quest to gain lean mass, I'm going to have some fat mass gained with it. Um, but at the current rate, at my current ratio of fat mass to lean mass, that's going to put me at a total amount of fat mass that I'm really just uncomfortable with. So that that's another scenario where it makes sense to kind of recalibrate that balance of lean mass to fat mass, get a little bit leaner so that you're like, okay, now when I project the rest of this weight gain phase, I, I have a decent idea of how much fat and lean mass uh, I'll gain, the proportion there, and now I feel like I'll be in a much better spot when I finish this weight gain phase. So um, just to tie that all up and put it all in a uh, concise conclusion, it should not really take a lot of drastic action. It should be treated basically like you're going to begin a normal cut you just end it way earlier. You know, the, the end point is not the same. We're not trying to get shredded with it. We're trying to just get to a more manageable level of body fat. So you basically, in my opinion, treat it like a normal cut. You should not have to worry about any dramatic changes in training, dramatic changes in diet. Uh, certainly metabolic adaptation should not be at the forefront of your mind for that type of a cut. And then once you get to uh, a body fat that you feel a lot better about, now it's time to gain some weight again. Makes sense to me. Okay. Question for Greg from Alex. Ooh, this is a question for both of us. But again, I'm just going to shut up, uh, know my place in this one, and let Greg talk. Uh, <laughs> so Alex asks us, do either of you have any recommendations for someone going into their first powerlifting meet? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So if you are... Considering signing up for your first meet, you've been training for powerlifting for a while and are considering, should I compete or not? I think absolutely you should. I think that, um, one, for the most part, meets are pretty fun. You're probably going to enjoy doing it, uh, and that will probably help you stick with powerlifting, which uh, my bias is that it's probably a good thing to stick with. And then, two, I think that there's a fringe benefit to signing up for a meet, um, in that it gives you, it gives you direction and drive in your training. So it's not terribly uncommon to, you know, just kind of futz around with your training and then realize like, oh, it's been 
six months, I haven't actually made any progress. Uh, and maybe because I was doing things that were dumb or lackadaisical. Whereas if you know that, you know, on this date, three months from now, I'm going to be competing and it sure would be nice to be stronger than, than I am now to make sure I'm getting my money's worth. I think that, you know, that helps keep you focused and, and driven uh, on a on a day-to-day basis in the gym. So anyway, one, if you're if you're considering going into your first powerlifting meet, I would I would strongly encourage you do so. And then in terms of uh, advice and recommendations going into it, one, uh, I would recommend not cutting weight. Your first meet is just about getting a total on the platform, getting used to the process of competing, getting a little experience with that. Um, it's a little bit stressful for for a lot of people the first time that they you know compete in a new sport. Um, so I don't see any purpose in adding extra stress on top of that by trying to cut weight. And also, I mean, just straight up, if we're being honest, your first meet, you're probably not that good of a power lifter yet. So like, you, no, no one's going to care if you put up um, a not incredibly competitive total in, you know, the 181 class versus the 165 class. Like it's, it's fine. Don't cut weight. Just roll in at whatever your normal body weight is. And then as you keep competing, if you do become more competitive over time, then you can start thinking about cutting weights to, you know, pursue a particular placing or maybe like a state record or qualifying for nationals. But for your first meet, don't cut weight. Um, one thing that I would strongly recommend you do, though, is to practice the commands in training. Um, this probably works best if you have an in-person coach or if you have training partners who can do the commands for you. Make sure you know what commands your federation has um, mainly I'm thinking if you're competing USAPL or, or like IPF affiliate versus non-IPF affiliate here, the biggest difference is whether they're going to have a start command for the bench press. Um, IPF affiliates do, most other federations don't. Um, but you know, make sure when you walk out for the squat, you're waiting for the squat command, you're waiting for the rack command for the bench press possibly waiting for the start command, certainly knowing to wait for the press command, and for the deadlift, knowing to wait for the down command. Um, that Jumping commands gets a lot of lifters, period, but certainly gets a lot of new lifters, because even if you've practiced, you know, squatting to depth and pausing your bench presses, if you're not used to waiting for commands and you jump a command, you could very well get red lights for a lift that you did earn. So, you know, practice the commands. At the very least, do it in your head, or if you have a training partner who can tell you squat at the start of each squat single that you do in prep for the meet, you know, take advantage of that, rack commands, etc. So practice the commands. Don't don't get red lights for silly stuff. Um, another thing that I would strongly recommend you do is to get video of squat depth. Uh, set up the camera at around hip height or slightly below, dead on to the side, 90 degree angle. Um, don't rely on your training partners unless your training partners compete in the same federation as you and know what kind of squat depth uh, judges look for. So if you're taking the video dead on from the side, look and see, you know, is the crease of my hip below the top of my knee? Um, and yeah, I mean... I see a lot of new lifters, it's their first or second meet, and 
you know, their technique is fairly decent, but they just squat a little bit high and they're they're just caught with their pants down because they uh, they don't know how deep you have to get to get white lights in a powerlifting meet. Um, and they're, you know, just taken aback by having to squat three or four inches deeper than they typically do in training. So make sure you get those videos um, and make sure your squats are actually to depth. Um, be prepared for a long pause in case your judge is like the head judge for bench press is super strict or maybe just having a bad day. Uh, this I think is something else that gets a lot of, again, a lot of lifters period, but certainly a lot of new lifters. Um, you practice pausing your bench and training, but you know, typically you don't have someone giving you a press command and you pause the bench for about half a second. The bar becomes motionless. You press it up. Things are good. You roll up on meet day and the judge is just having a bad day and, and the press call takes two seconds and suddenly bench press is a lot harder and maybe your opener is a little bit too aggressive and now you're in a world of suck and you bomb on the bench press. So uh, I'm going to talk about openers soon, but just, I mean, in general, be prepared for a longer pause on bench press than you you think you're going to have to deal with. Um most judges are fine. As soon as the bar is motionless, you get the press command. Everything's okay. But don't be don't be taken off guard if you have a judge giving really, really long press calls. Just make sure, you know, you do some like three-second pauses in training. And whatever your opener is, it's something you can comfortably press with a really long pause. So on, then on the topic of openers, open really conservatively. Um, if you're someone who has competed a lot... And you know you can be a little bit more aggressive with your openers. You you really have your form dialed in with heavier loads. That's totally fine. For your first meet, though, priority number one is you don't want to bomb out. So um, be conservative with your openers. Like, really do. Uh, the, the general advice I give lifters is if you don't know what to open with, open with something you can do for a really comfortable triple. For your first meet, I would say open with something you can do for a comfortable set of five. Um, you should not miss that on the platform, even if maybe your, your depth is off and you find out you have to squat three inches deeper than you're used to, whatever you can do for a set of five, you should still be able to get in for a single to stay in the meet. Um, so, so start with really conservative openers for your first meet. Uh, something non-competition related is meets are long, bring snacks. Uh, you'll, you'll probably get hungry at some point during the day. Um, something that I occasionally see is people don't come prepared with snacks that they know sit well on their stomach. And so, you know, maybe they use like Uber eats or like run out to a gas station, eat something. And now their stomach's kind of churning and deadlift is coming up and they don't want to poop themselves on the platform. And that's, that's just not a good scenario all around. So, you know, you're probably going to get hungry at some point during the day after you make weight, which again, I don't recommend cutting weight, but if you don't take my advice and you do cut weight, after you've made weight, like doesn't matter what you weigh anymore, bring snacks that you know are going to sit well on your stomach because you will get hungry and you want to be prepared and also bring drinks. Um, doesn't hurt to have plenty of caffeine, but also just, you know, make sure you have a water bottle. Um, there may or may not be water fountains at the venue, there will certainly be bathrooms. Just bring a water bottle that you can keep full. Um, and then 
two more things. One is make sure you check the Federation's equipment rules. And, and it's not a bad idea just to scan the rulebook in general, but one of the specific things to look for is what the, the Federation's rules are for equipment. Um, in general, you're going to need a regulation singlet. Uh, depending on what federation you compete in, again, here I'm thinking the IPF and IPF affiliates, they have specific manufacturers that they've approved singlets for or wrist wraps for or knee sleeves for. Um, so just make sure that all of the gear you bring to the meet is stuff that is allowed by the federation. I actually got caught by this one time because when I competed way back in the day, uh, it wasn't standard to have equipment rules for long socks. You could just you know, wear whatever socks you wanted. And they, you know, they have people on the platform to keep the deadlift bars clean. And, you know, you would generally try to not scrape your shin. But if you did, you get some blood on the bar, someone would run on the platform, clean the bar off, everything was fine. Then I rolled up to a meet one time and they were like, where are your socks? I'm like, I'm wearing them. And they're like, no, where are your long deadlift socks? And I didn't have them. So I had to borrow them from another lifter and so it was just like two people sharing one pair of socks for the day, which is a little gross. Wouldn't necessarily recommend it. So make sure you have long socks. Um, uh, one, one more thing on the equipment side. Um, when I went to my first meet, uh, they were like, hey, what are you going to wear under your singlet? I'm like, just my underwear. And they're like, you're not wearing that. <laughs> so they were just boxer briefs. And, and I guess in some federations, you can't do that either, right? Oh yeah, I uh, I almost forgot about that. So that's that's something that's changed just in the last few years. But um, yeah, so you can't wear like Under Armour shirts. They think that you know maybe you could slip the back and it would just be like the world's weakest bench shirt, and you could get maybe five pounds out of it. Um, and you can't wear boxer briefs because theoretically your boxer briefs could be made of a thick material and be super tight and function kind of like squat briefs that you might get again like five pounds out of um so yeah make sure if and i i think this would probably be a factor for male lifters more than female lifters but make sure you got some tidy whiteies or just plain old boxers because in a lot of feds these days boxer briefs don't count anymore and i don't think they let you free ball it on the platform either um, so make sure, yeah, make sure you have, uh, tidy whiteies or boxers. Um, okay. So equipment rules. Last thing is make friends. Um, powerlifting meets can be fun, but they are long. Uh, it's a really good idea. If you go to a gym where other people compete, it's a really good idea just to, to go to a meet that other people from your gym are, are doing. So, you know, then you can hang out with friends all day. It's a blast. Um, it can be a little bit more weird and lonely if, you know, you're the only person you know that's competing. But if that is the case, power lifters are an accepting bunch. Like 98% of lifters, if, you know, you're you're in the warm-up room and you're on the rack next to them and you let them know it's your first meet, they're, they're probably going to take you under their wing, you know, give you some advice for the day. Uh, be your friend for the day and you know you, you can make you can make good connections if you're not super integrated into the powerlifting scene in your area talk to a bunch of people at the meet make some friends you can find some training partners um, I mean powerlifting is just filled with like shit and drama online but in person it's a big happy family so 
take advantage of that when you're you know at at a meet venue with a bunch of other powerlifters make a bunch of friends we're all we're all crazy in similar ways and if the sport of powerlifting appeals to you we are probably weird in a similar way that you are weird and we're uh we're good friends to have so make friends it's so weird how that happens where like you know same thing with like bodybuilding the internet it just seems like a highly contentious place. And then you go to a meet and or a meet or a competition. Everybody's just super friendly. Everybody has so much in common. They just want to be friends. Um, I did have one question. So sometimes people find the warm up process a little bit difficult to navigate. Uh, basically trying to time their warm up, trying to make sure they have access to equipment for equipment for the warm-up and then like i said time it in relation to their placement in their flight Mm -hmm. is there anything useful you can tell a first timer or just expect the unexpected yeah man so that's tough um the reason i didn't say anything about warm-ups is that it does vary so much venue to venue so some warm-up rooms are going to have you know plenty of racks plenty of bars absolutely no process problem to get warmed up the meets running on schedule when they say your flight's going to start in 30 minutes your flight you know starts in 31 minutes and you know everything's running smoothly and then some meets it's a clusterfuck and there's virtually no equipment in the warm-up room um you know they say your flight's about to start in 30 minutes and it starts in 10 and then for the deadlift they say it's going to start in 30 minutes and then bench runs long and it starts in in an hour so, um, yeah, warming up properly, ironically, is oftentimes more stressful than the actual lifts you put on the platform because you're like, can I get equipment? Can I actually get warmed up in time? So what I would recommend is like, yeah, if it's your first meet, one of the reasons I said make friends is that if someone else is there and it's their 10th meet, they've probably dealt with warm up shit before and they've probably done like whatever meet you're doing, they probably held the same meet in the same venue last year. And if they if they're doing the meet this year, they probably did the meet last year as well. And so, so they'll have a better idea of what to expect for the warmups. Um, and so th- they'll probably be able to give you some guidance there. One thing that I would recommend is it's not a bad idea to be warmed up a little too early. Um, it's certainly better to be warmed up too early than too late. You don't want to be hitting your last warm-up attempt, um, you know, 90 seconds before you're about to go hit your opener. So something that can help is, you know, if you think your flight's about to start in 30 minutes and you think you're going to need 20 minutes to get warmed up, go ahead and start warming up, you know, 30 or 40 minutes before you think you're actually going to have to lift. And then if you hit your last opener and it's still or you, you hit your last warm up and it's still 10 minutes before you're going to hit your opener. Um, it's easy to stay warm. So if it's going to be 10 minutes, like five minutes before you're about to go hit your opener, just hit your last warm up again. And that'll be fine. That'll keep you warm. That'll keep the groove fresh, especially if you're picking conservative openers, which again, you should be. If you're opening at say 85% of your max and your last warm up is 80% of your max for a single, you can hit 80% for another single, and that's not going to fatigue you. That's not going to affect your subsequent performance on the platform. So, um, yeah, if someone can take you under their wing and kind of tell you, like, hey, here's what to expect for the warm-ups of this meet, that is ideal. Um, but then if you have to err on the side of being warmed up too early or too late, make it too early. And another thing is, like, 
even though it may be a little bit intimidating in the warm-up room if it's your first meet and maybe a lot of people are stronger than you, you still need to be assertive to get your equipment. Um, you know, the the thing about plates is they have the little holes in them that lets you slide them on and off the bar. If everyone else is squatting 315 and your first warm-up is 135, you go up to them and say, look, I need to take 135. I'm coming up in this next flight. You are stronger than me, but my lifts matter just as much as yours. Let me in on the equipment. Let me warm up. You, And, and that's another reason why it's good to kind of make friends early in the day. Because if you're afraid of being assertive, like I've done this for like teenage lifters, a bunch at meets. Um, like, you know, we get to know each other early in the day. I find out it's their first, their first meet. They're intimidated to like go tell older, larger people like, hey, I need to get on this equipment with you. And I can just go over and be like, hey, dude, let, the, let this guy work in. Um, so if you don't have something like that, you, you probably will need to be a little assertive to, to get access to the equipment you need to warm up. Um, so, so that's something to be prepared for as well. So, Greg, you know how sometimes people like develop something resembling expertise in like one or two areas and then it like freaks them out and they decide they should, shouldn't have an opinion about anything else? Sure. So I kind of just did that to myself. I kind of forgot that I've been coaching a powerlifting team in person for the last six years. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm standing next to a guy that squats like 700. I should just shut up. And then like halfway through your answer, I was like, wait a minute. Every single summer, I bring a whole group of guys to their first powerlifting meet ever. <laughs> so uh, the, the things that always trip us up, obviously you, you, you hit them all. Um, and for, for context, it's a special Olympics powerlifting team. So there are some other challenges that we, uh, kind of work through in the competition process, but the, the things that get us that are very generalizable to anyone doing their first meet would be, uh, the equipment stuff is brutal. Y you got to check in with the Federation before they'll, they'll all have their information online that you can check. Um, and it's, it's never a bad idea with your openers. Get something that you can just so easily bury on the squat, super deep, as deep as any judge would want you to go. And something that you could just lay it on your chest and press it, you know? So once you set your, your openers, you got nowhere to go but up from there. So you got to be, you got to give yourself a little bit of room to, uh, to at least get something on the board for sure. All right, Eric, next question for you is from C. Fiorilla uh, asking about textbooks. So in a previous episode of the podcast, we recommended buying an ex-phys textbook. One of the things you'll see when you look around and you're, you're trying to buy a textbook is that the newest current editions of textbooks are really expensive, unjustifiably so. Those blood-sucking publishers are the worst. But anyway, new textbooks are very expensive. Older editions, you know, maybe published 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, you can pick up used really, really cheap. So obviously science is advancing, the field is learning new things. So this question is basically asking, what are you missing out on by not buying the newest edition of a textbook? Uh, and are you probably going to be fine saving some money and just going with, with an older edition? Yeah, so this is a really good question. Um, Greg and I in the past have, have both said on the show uh, how enthusiastic we are about recommending that people do uh, pick up a textbook and, and work their way through it. And one of the things that uh, 
Greg and I also share is a personality that couldn't possibly allow us to spend like $200 on an exercise textbook. It's like, come on, that's crazy. Like they, they get so expensive. It, it's just wild. It's completely outrageous. Yeah. So I, I, I honestly, I don't even know if they go for 200. I haven't even looked at the price of a new hardcover textbook because it's so far off the realistic table of possibilities of things I would buy. I, I like don't even look into it. So what I always recommend to people is go find like one or two editions old. So I, I wouldn't say like, yeah, get one that's like five or six editions behind because one of the great things about science is that it does uh, grow and evolve and change. We learn more over time, uh, but we don't do it that quickly. And so it, it kind of comes to the general premise of what exactly is this textbook for? Um, I would say the, the the premise of recommending that you go check out a textbook is not to receive the cutting edge, absolutely brand new, hot off the presses research of the day. Uh, and, and frankly, even if that's why you're doing it, you're not going to get it. Uh, when we were talking uh, in our interview with Lauren Colenzo Semple, we were talking about how there's a lot of information about fiber types that just hasn't made its way in yet. Yeah, th um, th that was actually one of the the few things I would say has has changed in the most recent edition of some textbooks, but wouldn't be in older textbooks like some some of the the fiber typing stuff. Yeah, so so there there are um but but even at the time that some of the slightly older editions were were printed, it was like the research was kind of there, but they weren't ready to really make their way into the textbooks yet. Right. Like yeah. what I'm getting at is there is some lag time. Correct. Where like even when you buy the new textbook, it's probably even still just a tiny bit behind where where we truly are in terms of the cutting edge research. For sure. In a lot of cases. Um, but in any case, the reason that we recommend looking at a textbook is really to help establish basically a baseline background theoretical knowledge of the field the really key concepts that have basically been more or less ingrained for more than a handful of years so this is to establish a baseline knowledge in how do muscles work how does metabolism work um, really basic stuff to help get a firm uh, foundation of your knowledge in the field not only firm but also comprehensive Make yourself work your way through, not just the stuff you want to know. So how does a muscle work? But also how does, you know, metabolism and bioenergetics relate to how muscle works? How do, you know, the respiratory systems and the cardiovascular systems relate to each other? Because what you'll find, um, I kind of had a, a project idea a million years back that uh, <laughs> it didn't really work out. But I was like, what if I just kind of threw together like something resembling a textbook? It was a bad idea. I don't know why I thought that was cool. But one of the really challenging things is deciding where to start because all of the different chapters of a textbook are so inherently interrelated. For sure. To some degree. So like it's hard to explain the cardiovascular system without the respiratory system. And it's hard to explain how muscles work without the bioenergetic piece. And you have to kind of figure out in what order do I even approach this? And honestly, when I review textbooks, like talking with friends about which ones we liked or disliked, it basically comes down to who had the most creative way to tackle the problem of what order do we discuss this in? Um, which you and I disagree extremely. About, on, about Brooks? Yeah, the George Brooks textbook. 
I, I think to this day, I still contend has a lot of extremely good information, but the order of it, I just can't get past. I, it doesn't work for me. Mentally. So at, at this point, the show has officially jumped the shark because we're doing, <laughs> we're, we're doing reviews of a particular advanced physiology textbook that no one listening to this is ever going to read. Um, so the, the thing I like about Brooks is like, I, I do think the depth and quality of information is truly exceptional from yes. like a textbook resource. And I think that it would make just an utterly dog shit first exercise physiology textbook. Yeah. But since it's not intended to be that, since it is like a graduate level ex phys text, I think that it can get away with worse organization because you should come in knowing probably 60 to 70% of the information in the textbook. And it's just like topping you off on that last little bit, you know? Absolutely. So <laughs> I think that's a good gentle reminder to get back on track. So um, <laughs> the reason that you're looking for this textbook is not to get the cutting edge research. It's to establish your foundation of theoretical knowledge in the field. And that theory is derived by years and years and decades of research on the key foundational topics. And what this is going to do for you is it's going to give you a nice line of defense against when someone tries to sell you something stupid or tell you about some stupid training strategy and you say, no, 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 I understand the actual foundational concepts here. That doesn't sound like it makes any sense whatsoever. Usually even just kind of a baseline level of that based on stuff that we knew to be true by 1995 is going to be enough to arm you against a lot of those types of claims and, and products that just don't make any sense. Uh, another thing it does is it gives you a base of information for making future decisions about things that aren't even thought of yet. So when some new supplement comes out, when some new training contraption or training method comes out, really the first line of defense for that is based on foundational concepts of how exercise physiology works. Do I have any reason to believe that that's plausible? And so a textbook is what's going to help you with those things, not, you know, is every line of this thing gospel and completely up to date. And so for that reason, I do recommend go one edition, two editions, maybe three editions old, but then I'm starting to get a little bit uncomfortable, but one or two editions old, you're going to pay a fraction of the cost. You're going to get a, an enormous percentage of the benefit from it, and you're probably not going to be missing out on too much. So yeah, I, I do think one of the big benefits of textbooks is just the the degree to which they are comprehensive. So like they're they're broad but not super deep, but that's totally fine. Because um, because like Eric was getting at, there's I think it's underappreciated how interconnected all of physiology is. And so if you're if you're like us and you're you know into powerlifting or bodybuilding and you know mainly just want to get jacked and or strong if you open a physiology textbook you know you're probably just going to jump you're you're probably going to look at the index and see what is the skeletal muscle chapter and then jump straight to that but everything is so incredibly interconnected so if you don't know about metabolism then it's like oh we're you know we're oxi oxidizing carbohydrate and fat but how is that stuff actually getting delivered to the muscle and how does that delivery work during exercise and how is it regulated? Uh, you may not care at all about learning about the kidneys, but that's where most of the electrolyte regulation goes on. And so when you learn about excitation, contraction, coupling, uh, and how sodium, like the sodium and potassium gradients are super important for depolarization of the sarcolemma, 
like that stuff working properly is largely down to the kidneys. When you learn about how acidosis can affect uh, fatigue of the muscles, um, that's going to be regulated by both the kidneys and the lungs. So it's worth knowing how that works. And so, you know, maybe if you have a little bit of pulmonary edema, that's going to compromise exercise capacity because it induces some acidosis. Um, you know, obviously important to learn about the heart to see how all of this stuff is delivered to the muscles in the first place and how cardiac output is affected by different forms of exercise and exercise intensity, learning about the autonomic nervous system to get an idea of how like blood shunting works to, to deliver blood to the active muscles and not systemically, like all of these things work together. And so by the time you get down to, you know, doing a bench press, there's a, a tremendous amount of stuff that has gone on to put your body into a position where it can do that. Um, and it's all incredibly inter interconnected. And it, maybe if you're having issues with something, I mean, unless it's like something clinical, it is probably going to be like neural or muscular. Um, but like there, there are a lot of different systems that affect how exercise performance works and how muscles function. And you can't, you can't fully understand muscle unless you have at least a decent understanding of lungs or kidneys or livers or any of the rest of it. It's, it's all incredibly interconnected and you'll get that from a textbook if you actually force yourself to sit down and read the whole thing. And it's, it's hard to get that breadth of understanding from pretty much any other source. Yeah. And it, you mentioned that people are likely to just say, okay, let's skip to the skeletal muscle stuff. Uh, very brief anecdote, grad students always give guest lectures. Like if a faculty member has to go on a trip, they're you know going to take vacation, go travel for work, whatever that, you know, they'll go to the grad student and say, Hey, come teach my class for a day. I'm gone. And it was like three of us sitting around. We were all PhD students between the three of us. We had done like seven recent guest lectures and it was like six of those were pulmonary and one was renal. <laughs> <laughs> and like we we very quickly realized every ex-phys professor if they basically wait to teach about the lungs or the kidneys until they're on vacation like even at the highest levels of the field nobody wants to deal with that but uh it's still very important and the textbooks where you get it um one last thing before we move on george brooks is an absolute legend the stuff he's done with lactate metabolism is remarkable but I think you should have rearranged the chapters. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so we got one last question. Um, the question was, what are the best ways to increase quad size and strength to help knee extensors in the squat? And so basically the way I'm interpreting this question is, what are your favorite quad exercises? Is that fair enough? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, how about you start here and then I'll I'll come in. Yeah, so I... I tend to be fairly simple with exercise selection, but I do um, have a couple little tweaks that I like to make to some of them. Um, so obviously, if you're talking quads, uh, front squat and back squat are going to be nice. I mean, front squat is exquisite for the quads uh, because it's just, for me, remarkably quad heavy. Um, dumbbell Bulgarian split squat is nice, but I really like to do it uh, with holding just a single dumbbell. Um, for whatever reason, I tend to be able to balance way better if I do uh, just a dumbbell held in the hand of the active leg, the leg that's actually squatting, which is kind of atypical. 
Um, but so like if, if my right foot's up on a bench and I'm squatting with the left leg, I'll hold only a dumbbell in my left hand and extend my right hand out uh, for counterbalancing. And for whatever reason, for me, that is just the sweet spot of being able to just focus in, not worry about balance and drive through that quad. Um, I like walking lunges. Um, I tend to get plenty for the quad out of that. I know some people, depending on their stride length, uh, can kind of shift that focus to other muscle groups. Uh, unilateral leg extension machine. Uh, I love turning that into a unilateral uh, exercise, even if it's not set up for that. Um, uh, it, to me, it's just it's so much better when I can really focus in on making sure that the uh, you know, I, I'm focusing uh, and kind of manipulating my body's positioning to make sure it's just perfect application of that force for the each individual quad. And another thing I like to do, Greg, you and I have talked about this for for whatever reason. We both grew up near gyms that had the uh, just this beautiful hammer strength horizontal leg press with a slightly tilted uh, foot platform. <laughs> and that machine is wild. Uh, and I do that in a unilateral fashion as well. And I'm actually pretty upset because I used to love that machine. I no longer have access to it. And it was just my favorite thing in the world. And then finally, um, you can't have this discussion without talking about the, uh, the traditional hack squat machine with the load, uh, positioned over the shoulders. I don't, I don't like the, the kind of newer generation that they're called hack squats, but it's, it's like your the load is more situated near the hips. Yeah. I, I, it like puts you into like some pretty serious lumbar flexion as like a starting point. I, I'm not a big fan of that. I like the traditional, you know, at an angle weight on the shoulders, hack squat. I, I agree with all of those for the most part. So, if the the way this question was asked is uh, what are the best exercises for increasing quad size specifically for the squat? And so the the way I'm looking at this is like if you're if if you don't have another muscle group that's limiting you, just squat, like do some form of squat. you're you're not going to be able to train your quads specifically for the squat better than you can with the squat. And so then when I start thinking about accessory exercises, I'm approaching it with uh, with that context in mind that basically this person needs more quad work than they can get from the squat, which could be for, for a couple different reasons. One, maybe someone has some sort of back issue or some sort of hip issue that just limits the amount of weekly squatting volume they can do for, for some other reason. Um, or maybe this person just just naturally has a crazy hip dominant squat and subjectively doesn't feel like they get much quad stimulation from doing squats um, and you know have a, a relative dearth of quad development to back up that subjective feeling. So under those circumstances, I'm thinking about what exercises can we do that's going to take a fair amount of spinal or hip loading out of the equation so we can really, really focus in uh, on the quads in situations where people can't just get the quad work they need from squatting. And so oftentimes for the super, super quad dominant squatters, um, I agree with Eric's recommendation to do front squats. Because basically, if you start putting yourself in a hip dominant position for front squats, you just dump the bar. 
And so it forces you to stay more upright and have more forward knee travel. So um, front squats can have a lot of utility for those folks. Um, I personally, so in working with powerlifters, I've often found that uh, dumbbell split squats are pretty iffy just because by the time you get strong enough, your grip is going to limit you before your quads do. So I find that um, you may not necessarily want to do like barbell, like back squat position lunges, because then if you start losing your balance, things get really dicey really quick. But you can just do those, uh, those split squats or lunges with a barbell in the front rack position. And one, that's going to keep you honest for the same reason front squats do. You have to be pretty upright and focusing more on your quads instead of letting yourself hinge forward and maybe getting your hip extensors into the movement a little bit more um, just by virtue of the barbell being in the front rack position. And that also lets you load it a little bit heavier without grip being a limiter. Um, so I do I do like split squats and lunges, but generally more with a barbell in a front rack position versus dumbbells. Um, with the walking lunges, I also think they're awesome, and I think that they're best done with body weight for crazy high reps. I don't know why, but I think just like, you know, 200 yards straight of walking lunges, even if form starts getting iffy by the end and like range of motion starts getting really compromised, if like the quad burn started at 50 meters in and you're going 200 meters, I don't care. Like that's still, that's going to, to clobber the shit out of your quads, and I, I, just the bro in me thinks that's awesome. That's something I did really early in my training career. I felt like I got a lot of quad growth out of it. Still to this day, if maybe like my back or hips are a little janky and I just want to clobber the shit out of my quads, it's like, okay, well, let's find a sidewalk where there's not going to be that many people walking or driving who will see how ridiculous I look. And I'm just going to do walking lunges until I hate myself. Um, and then I also really, really strongly agree with the hack squat suggestion. Um, there is still probably going to be some degree of spinal loading just because, you know, the, the, if it's a good hack squat machine and the weight is pressing down on the shoulder pads into you, um, it is still probably going to be some level of loading for the spine, but it, it's not going to be probably as stressful as like barbell back squats will be. Um, and you can just get really deep into it, really, really, um, largely isolate your quads much better than you would be able to with leg press. Um, hack squats bother some people's knees. So, you know, play it by ear. If hack squats don't feel good for you, don't do them. Um, but yeah, th those would be my recommendations as well. And also belt squats. If you have a gym that has a belt squat machine, which, which I know is pretty uncommon, um, but if your gym does have a belt squat machine, belt squats are great too. All right. I think that does it for this Q&A episode. Before we leave, I do want to make a quick announcement. Um, Andy Morgan, if you're listening, I know you are. Please stop texting me about keeping Greg Knuckles as a permanent co-host. Andy, you might know him from the, uh, the biggest fitness site in Japan, I believe. Is that right, Greg? Yeah. Uh, also a co-author of the, the Muscle and Strength Pyramid books. With Eric Helms, right? Yeah, now the number one best-selling health and fitness book in Spain. And there's a third author on that, right? Uh, Andrea Valdez. Yes, yes. So, yeah, Andy has mes uh, messaged me three times in the last 24 hours to keep you on as a permanent host. 
Two of them happen exactly 12 hours apart. And I know for a fact he has alarm set. And <laughs> the, he's, he sent me a video of him setting alarms. God, I to love remind Andy. Me. And I'm starting to think that he is the head of the whole troll farm operation that seems to be messaging me nonstop about keeping you around. It's simply just not a possibility. Okay, so everyone save your time, especially Andy. Call off uh, all the people you've put up to this. It has to stop. Okay, as always, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.